Welcome to another episode of Chan with the Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actionable steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you can stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. And I'm your host, Max Chan. As I have mentioned in previous podcasts, the pandemic has really made us reflect on what we want in a career. And a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Sydney Magania on how she wanted to pivot into tech from higher education. So we are going to continue with this theme and interview an individual that was doing very well for herself in the field of law, but decided to pivot to pursue a career in writing. And how it goes to show that it's never too late to switch career paths if you do not feel fulfilled. Her name is Amy Martin, and she is the author of The Parts We Lost and Mirror Mine, and also the founder of Afghan Refugee Resettlement Assistance, DMV, a community impact group that provides support and resources for Afghan refugees. As a military spouse, mom of two, and self-described recovering lawyer, she knows a thing or two about adaptability. Navy life has taken her around the world and has made Amy a true adventurer and an expert packer. Her prized possession is a taxidermied tanuki her husband found at a thrift shop in Japan for a thousand yen. Now let's get into my discussion with Amy on changing careers in your 30s to fulfill your life purpose. Hey Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's the couple days after Labor Day. How are your kids doing in school now? I was just a little bit excited for <laughs> for them to go back. <laughs> But so far, they're loving it, which is great. I'm sure that will wear off. But for now, they're happy. <laughs> you finally have some like, alone time at the house now too, right? Just, yes, a little. I, I treasure it. <laughs> so again, uh, thank you for coming on. And the reason why I wanted to bring you on is you have a very interesting story, how you started off in a very prestigious occupation as a lawyer. And then you did a lot of career clarity and you ended up moving to like writing and then working on a refugee project that we'll get into. So why don't you tell us more about how you started off in becoming a lawyer? I started off with this very type A personality. I had this plan that I was going to execute the plan. And, you know, I was top of my class in high school and top of my class in college, graduated in three years, got a full scholarship to my law school. Um, I got a really good clerkship out of law school and was just kind of on on my way. Like I had this idea that I'm going to be partner track, you know, and uh, be this this famous great lawyer. Uh, and then life happened. <laughs> what made you want to become a lawyer? Like why why go for lawyer? Why not like a doctor or like getting an MBA? Do like banking? Well, doctor was out because I took organic chemistry in college and it was awful. So that was the end of of being a doctor. But honestly, I always wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to do that. I wanted to work in criminal law. That was my original plan. I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer. And I still ended up in criminal law, but it was a it was more of a prisoner rights on paper kind of a job. But yeah, I, I really I went into it wanting to help people. I knew I was a smart person, a capable person, and wanted to do something impactful. So how how long does it take for one to go from like a bachelor's to going to law school to getting your what do they call it, the LLB, right? It's a JD, a Juris oh, Doctor is the, oh, oh, the, <laughs> the JD. Okay. degree. Yeah. yeah, so how long does it take you from going to the bachelor's to getting your JD from law school? Normally, I mean, everybody's different for their bachelor's. You can have any undergraduate qualifications that you want, although I would recommend something in the hard sciences. 
but I didn't do that. I was a political science major. So basically I had to do some kind of graduate work or I would have been basically unemployable. But your bachelor's normally takes about four years. I did it in three. I had a lot of AP credits, almost a whole year of AP credits. So three to four years of that. And then you take the LSATs, which is kind of like the MCATs or the GRE, so your, you know, entrance exam, get ranked for that, apply to schools. And then law school itself is three years of school. And then you go on. Sometimes in that last year, you're working also under another person's license. But so it's six, seven years total. So standard, I guess, would be a seven-year track. So I'm a career coach and I have talked to some people that have graduated law school and they have a hard time landing their first job at a law firm. So what type of advice can you provide my audience in terms of how to get their first job in law? I think it's probably the same things that you would use in any kind of career. You have to network, you have to join, be a joiner, you know, in your school, talk to your professors. They know people, have a really good resume practice interviewing. If you have a professor or another mentor at the school who will let you practice interviewing with them, take them up on it You and record yourself and watch yourself on video. See how you look, see what your tics are. All of these things matter. Dress appropriately. It should be an obvious thing, but we actually, I had a whole professor who had one whole class with us, one session talking about this is what you wear, this is what you don't wear. And some students were a little surprised somehow. But all of those things. And then when you go into interview, I mean, be well-rested, be confident, you know, know your value and sit down and show them. Tell them what you can bring to their firm, not what you want, but what value you can add to them. So going back to the resume for a sec, how would you write a resume when you have limited or no work experience in law firms? Yeah, that's why it's important in your law school to volunteer and join clubs because all of that counts too. If you can get, you know, if you have time, if you can get an unpaid internship, even if it's just a couple of hours a week, you know, or if you can join the moot club or if you can get on law review or even just volunteering with the legal aid in your area, a lot of them will allow law students to come in and do limited work. Those are the things that you can put on your resume that will substitute for the job experience that you don't yet have. So you'll have your educational part on top and then this, this, you know, body of volunteer experience underneath it. So as you know, law school is very expensive. Uh, so <laughs> yes. So what's your advice in terms of balancing, like trying to grow your career, but also making sure you pay off the debt for, for all the law school that you've incurred over the tenure that you were at law school? I would back up before that. And when you're looking at applying to law schools, I would say follow the money. If you have the choice between a first tier law school and a second tier or third tier law school, and the first tier, you're going to have to pay 100% out of pocket. And the second or third tier, you can get a partial or full scholarship. Take the money. <laughs> After your very first job, nobody cares where you went to college, unless it's Harvard or Yale. I mean, you know, with the exception of the big ones, if you're a normal person, like all of us, <laughs> other people, follow the money. And then after school, with hopefully some reduced debt from having some scholarships, and you can apply while you're in school too. But after school, you're probably used to being a little bit poor. <laughs> Keep that mentality <laughs> as long as you can and double up on those loan payments to pay down your principal faster. That would be my my personal advice, even if, especially if you're not taking the corporate job that has, you know, a close to six figure or over six figure salary starting out. Great. And how long did you did you stay at one law firm before you decided to pursue other avenues or did you jump around a bit? I had a an interesting path. <laughs> I had an offer for a law firm 
It was a partner track. It was it was my goal. I had it in sight. And then I married a man who was a lawyer in the Navy, and we immediately moved to a different state. So I ended up taking the bar exam in a completely different state in Florida instead, and then had to seek job opportunities down there and actually landed a federal clerkship, which is another really prestigious, good job that leads to um, other great things. But then we moved again. <laughs> All right. So you, you've been doing law for... I believe a few years now, what made you decide that getting partner was no longer worth it? Like what was the turning point for you? Part of it was the moving, which is particular to our military lifestyle. Every time you move, you kind of have to start over. You can't just enter a law, even if you've been practicing, you know, five, seven, 10 years, you can't just walk into a law firm and say, I want to be partner, you know, right out the gate. You're starting as an associate, you're taking a pay cut, you're taking some of the work that's maybe not the work that you would choose. So for me, it was part that, and then also part that I started to feel like my life would be more, I would be more fulfilled personally doing other kinds of work and using my law background more for volunteer work and doing other things with my career time. You said your, your, your husband was a lawyer in the Navy, right? Yeah, he still is. Mm -hmm. He still is. Okay. So he didn't have a choice. Like if they told him he had to go somewhere, you would have to move with him, right? For the most part, we always have a list and then they tell you, they say, pick something on your list. And then we pick something and they say, no, you're going somewhere else. <laughs> so yeah, you go where they, you go where they tell you to. So were your kids also like, in school during this time as well when you're moving around? Part of it. Yeah. This was through my early, you know, baby having days. So part of it, they were babies and toddlers and now, you know, they're school age. And my son's been to, gosh, I think three schools now in four years. So what advice do you have for people with families that are looking to make a move, uh, whether it's their own decision or the company asked them to move. What type of advice would you give in terms of like settling down and adjusting to a new life in a new area? I would tell them everyone loves their children and we all want our children to have this stable, perfect childhood. Probably the childhood we didn't have, we're all trying to create our perfect childhood for the next generation. But what I would say is kids are more resilient than you think. And especially I mean, I can tell you I'm around a lot of families with a lot of military kids who've been through a lot of moves and they make it, they adjust, they're highly adaptable. You know, kids are smart, give them some credit. They will find new friends. It might be a little bit of a bumpy adjustment for a little while, but they will, they'll find their people just like you find your people and they will be fine. You should, if it's a good career move for you, a good move for your family, I would say do it. Your kids will be okay. How did they adjust to remote learning? Because of COVID. <laughs> oh, the stories I could tell about remote learning. You know, my school-aged son, he did, he did fine. He missed being around kids. That's the big thing. Kids, you know, he's very social. So I think it was a little bit harder for him. He liked being able to be in his pajamas all day long and not having as strict of a schedule. But I do think this year, now that he's back in school, I think he's really glad to be back in a classroom. But again, highly adaptable, right? Like he he had a little trouble at first and then you figure it out and you figure out your your groove and you go with it. When did you decide like, okay, I, I don't want to do law anymore. I do want to do something else. Like you were talking about like the, the moves did attribute to like wanting to do something else. But again, what was the trigger point where you actually made that decision that, okay, I'm done with this? It was two things. The first was that my husband is in the litigation job. He's the in-courtroom guy. And his hours can be erratic. It depends. You know, if he's prepping for a case, they're long hours, or weekends, all that. It gets really hard when you have two people 
in that kind of a job. As far as childcare works, you have to have the, you know, the live-in nanny or the full-time au pair or something like that. So that was thing one is what, what kind of a lifestyle do we want? Do we want both of us having that kind of a job? And then I think the final nail in the coffin was getting um, moved to Japan, <laughs> where it's a little bit harder to practice U.S. law. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the, that was a three-year stint. So maybe that's the time when I really just embrace the pivot and go. So what made you discover that writing was the avenue to go with, as well as taking care of your kids, obviously? Yeah, I've always enjoyed writing. I've written creatively since I was a little kid. I have notebooks full of, you know, really like terribly spelled stories when I was a kid. And the thing about writing is that as you get older and if you are career minded, you don't think of writing as something that can pay the bills or at least pay the bills very well. It's not that clear path to success, you know, that being a lawyer or a doctor is. So I'd always enjoyed it, but I never looked at it as a career path until I was in the situation where I thought, well, maybe I should reevaluate that. It's a good point that you made, right? Because a lot of people have like these creative pursuits, whether it's drawing, writing, or like making content, shooting videos, and they don't really think that it's a long-term career. So they end up doing something that's quote unquote safe, whether again, like a lawyer, banker, what have you. But so how did you figure out that you could make money writing? I used, and it is, it's this fallacy, right? That everyone is either very right-brained or very left-brained. And I think that people who are very successful often, as you said, are very creative. So I used all of those skills, my good research skills from law school to learn the field. I mean, you have to do your research. You, you know, ask other people who know more. You use Google and all of the other resources, <laughs> you know, do market research. You know, you can find out what a certain author is doing in sales in a given year. You can find out how much their marketing budget is if you know where to look and who to ask. So I did a lot of work up front and I created, I didn't just say, oh, I'm going to write now. I created a business plan. I mean, it's an actual, you know, five-year on paper business plan. These are the steps I'm going to take to get to this place. So even though it's creative, you still have to think about it from that other place that you were before in your more prestigious job. That makes sense. And what year are you in your business plan, in your five-year business plan? What year are you in on that? I am officially, I guess, year one and a half. <laughs> I'm somewhere between year one and year two. I had to take a little time off to have a child, <laughs> but now I'm back on track. What was the transition like in terms of starting your writing business or writing career? You know, the biggest thing is the change in that in identity. You get so used to when people say, who are you or what do you do? It's, I'm a lawyer. I do law things. And you take that away from someone and all of a sudden, especially when you say, I'm a writer, the next question is, well, what have you written? Well, if you haven't published anything yet, you kind of feel like you're an imposter, you know, in this new field. So I spent a lot of time saying, well, I used to be a lawyer, but now I'm, and then launching into it. And it got, it took a while to get comfortable with saying, no, this is what I do now. And of course, now I have published a few things. So I feel like I'm a little bit more legitimate. And I generally don't mention being a lawyer, even though I'm still licensed. I would never, never give that up. It worked too hard for it. <laughs> how does that work? Like, do you have to renew it every so often with an exam or how's that work? Yeah, it's not an exam. Well, at least in, I'm licensed in Florida and they just want your money. So every year they send you a bill and you, you pay, pay the bill and you're okay. And you can be, you can be on inactive status uh, if you're not actively practicing law, which still allows you to do some pro bono stuff. But if I ever wanted to become active again and practice within the state of Florida, you just have to do some continuing education credits uh, like you do in lots of fields and then and pay another check, you know, <laughs> and then you're good to go. All right. And 
when you decided that you, that you wanted to quit law, like, was there any backlash with your family and friends? Because like in my culture, they wanted you to have that safe job. And then when you quit to do something completely different, like there's a lot of backlash. So like, was there any on your side or were they very supportive in your decision? It was a little bit split. I had some family that was very supportive and said, yeah, this is where you need to be. You know, I've like my mother, I've noted since you were little, you were always supposed to be a writer. You just did this other thing for a while being a lawyer. So she's great. She's mom, right? Mom support you no matter what. But I had other family members who said, oh, you know, you work so hard for this career. You have, you can always, you know, have a job as a lawyer, which is not as true as some people think it is. And they said, think about it. Like, you know, think about it before you, they, they weren't like, don't do it. But they definitely said, think carefully before you do this. And everybody said, keep up your law license, you know, and that was, I was going to do that anyway. But I mean, everybody said, keep sending that check every year, you know, keep it. You never know when you might want to go back. How expensive is that a yearly renewal or that check? Oh, so in, in Florida, I think it's around $150. It depends on the state. My husband's is like $10. It's it just, it, he's Indiana licensed. So it depends on where you are. The big states, Florida, New York, California, they're a little bit pricier in general. And they're not as friendly with reciprocity. If you're going to be a lawyer, check out reciprocity when you take your bar. <laughs> That's my advice to you. Okay, so you said it was only 150 bucks. Like renewing every year is not a big deal, right? No, no. It's yeah, no, not at all. Totally worth it. Did you make this career change from lawyer to a writer in your early 30s, early mid 30s? Early 30s. Even before I went into creative writing, I was doing freelance legal writing for an an injury, personal injury firm. So that was sort of my little foray into it. I could still get paid, you know, and still use some of that legal expertise. But yeah, that was that was my early 30s. And now I'm now I'm officially, sadly, mid 30s. <laughs> Time ticks on. And uh, full time creative writing. So I think a lot of professionals, especially with the pandemic, a lot of them are reevaluating their career trajectory. A lot of professionals, young professionals aren't happy with where they are right now, but they're too scared to take a jump to do something completely different. Again, out of fear of backlash with like uh, friends and family, having to start over, whether that's lower pay or going back to school. So what's your advice for these professionals that want to make a move, but are too scared to lose what they've built all these years? I think the first thing would be before you make a leap, do your research. It should be an educated leap into a new field, right? You shouldn't just one day walk into your job and say, I can't take it anymore and quit and then go find something else. I I think that's not smart. And as far as licensing goes, you know, if you can, if you have the choice to keep up your licensing, I would do that too. But other than that, I'm a big fan of following your gut. I think if you're unhappy, you know, as far as we go, as far as we know, we get one life (laughs) and one, one shot at it. And I do sometimes think you have to take the mentality of life is too short to be miserable. It doesn't matter how much money you're making or how good your job is. So I, I think People live on a lot less, you know, tight, tighten up a little bit. Maybe don't do so much Amazon one-click purchases at two in the morning and go for it and see. You'll know, I feel like right away, whether you've made the right decision. And if you if you get in there and you're like, oh no, I I screwed up, it's not too late to go back either. You know, you can you can go back to your other career. Yeah, absolutely. And what is some advice that you wish you knew in your 20s? that you wish that you had learned at that time to have a career path that you would be fulfilled in? If I could go back to my college days, I would have taken more electives and I would have done a semester abroad just because I could finish in three years. I was so eager to get into the world, like get out of school and into the workforce. 
and I was paying for it myself. So there is the money, you know, concern of, well, another year of school is X amount more dollars. But if I could do it over again, and if I would have listened to my future self, which is questionable whether I even would have listened to my future self, but I would have taken more electives and I definitely done a semester abroad. I know my husband did that and it was an amazing experience for him to work with a barrister in, in England. So that for college years, I would say that. And then beyond that, I would say be open to opportunities that present themselves that aren't necessarily right in your field. Just be be receptive. Don't automatically close the door on something because it doesn't fit the straight line idea of what you have for your life and your career path. And a lot of young professionals, they want to work a lot, right? They work long hours to prove themselves, to get that promotion, get that raise. Uh, and then that usually results in like delaying like family life. So what is your advice in terms of like balancing your personal life uh, with your career, like not overwork your career, but then put the family and personal on the wayside? I think it's a valid question, especially for women. I mean, that's just, you know, the way it is. The women still have the babies, <laughs> at least at this point in science. And it is hard. And I don't think it's wrong to delay your career for a while to have children. I think in a lot of instances, it's just smart. I mean, it's hard to juggle sleepless nights you know, and newborn issues, even if you have full-time care and really good care, it's hard to do that and have a demanding career where you're trying to advance in your career early on. So, I mean, most women I know, myself included, when we went into the work field, you know, we, we waited and our spouses were on board with that, that it's, you know, we need to do at least some career work first before we have children. On the other hand, if it happens and you're building your family, that's all right, but just know that maybe then you have to dial back a little bit your expectations for your career because I'm a big fan of saying you can have it all, but just not at once. And I, I really think that holds true and it has throughout the years for me too. I have been able to do everything that I wanted to do, but not necessarily on the timeline that I wanted to do it. Yeah, like I, I know some people that know, know women that they never went, like they didn't go up to like director or VP because they want to spend more time with their family. So they were happy with the, the job they have because they knew that the more promotions they got, the more responsibilities and the more hours. And they just thought it wasn't worth it. They thought that spending time with their kids was more important uh, at that point. And a lot of them uh, didn't regret doing that. No, but I do think though, things are changing slowly. I do think eventually in a perfect world, there would be a better life balance, work-life balance for everybody. And men too, like men also like their children. They would, they would like to be home sometimes too. And it is really sad that we have a lack of female VPs, you know, and female CEOs in the workplace because women do often choose their families over their jobs. And while you will, I think, always have to make choices, everybody has to make choices between work and life. I hope that going forward, I hope that women press employers to be more flexible, be more flexible with hours. Do I have to be in the workplace from these hours to these hours or can I do more at home? You know, can I take conference calls from other places and just ask, you know, I, I would, before you leave too, if that's what it is, if it's your work family balance, that's making you really unhappy, sit down with your, with your boss or your employer and say, this, these are the issues I'm having. I know you value me as an employee. How can we make this work? And I, I would at least try it first. I think with remote working through the pandemic, there's more work-life balance, work-life flexibility because the women are at home, uh, they, they can watch the kids. The husband can like run their errands and stuff while working yeah. from home. So th th I think the pandemic has helped promote that work flexibility. And as things are going back to 
what they call a new normal. I think hybrid models here to stay. And with that being said, I think a lot of professionals are, are going to be more happy now because they do have that work flexibility that they always craved compared to before where it was like you have to be at the office Monday to Friday. Yeah, I think there was this real fear from employers that, oh, if everyone works at home, productivity is going to fall. And that's what you heard. And that's why no one has wanted to do it in the past. And I, the, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that employers were forced to do it. And they're very much finding that, big surprise, employees are happier. Productivity has not fallen. And in a lot of cases, it's improved. And I know at least in the government sector, which is kind of what I'm most familiar with at this point, military and, and DOD and other you know, government employees, they are sticking to a hybrid model and they are sending out surveys, asking people if you could have your choice, how many, you know, how many days a week would you work at home? How many would you work in the office? And they're trying to accommodate it because they're seeing that happy workers make better workers. They want to work harder for the company when they can also catch their kids' baseball game. So yeah, I, I think it's, there's some good things that have come out of the, the pandemic and that's, that's the big one. Yeah, again, glass half full or glass half empty is how, how you um, is how you perceive it. It's all perception. So, going back to your writing career, why don't you walk us through how you had your idea for your first book and how long it take you to write it? What were some learning lessons along the way with that? Sure, I had I had one throwaway book first. I think most writers will tell you, or at least the successful ones, will say that they still have a manuscript that's like shoved in a drawer, like in their you know bedroom door that they that will never see the light of day. And it was a practice book because you make a lot of mistakes just like you do in any any field. But the first one that's that was published is now published. I took it from life experience, from family experience. It's a family drama. So even though it's about, you know, a, a military veteran coming home, which is a space that I'm familiar with just because of being a military spouse, it's really about interpersonal relationships with family, which as, you know, a mom and a kid and just a, a human, that's life experience that's, that's thrown in there too. Uh, as far as how long it took me to write, boy, it was a windy road on this one. I guess all said and done, it was a couple of years, but that was on and off. So I would say six months of really focused, drilled down work on it to get it in shape to publish. I'm assuming you had writer's block at some point during the process, right? <laughs> I I do, but I guess, again, drawing from my previous law experience, I am not, they call them, what do they call them? Pantsers are people who don't outline pantsers. That's the the writing term. I am not that person. I'm a plotter and a planner. I have a very detailed outline. I think about stories a long time before I ever put, well, it's not pen to page anymore, but before I ever type a word on the computer. So when I sit down to write, I do have an idea. I already have that outline. I know where I'm going with the story. And it does take away some of the writer's block. It'll still be sitting there saying, well, I don't know what this person should say right now in the story. But at least I know the arc you know, of the story and where it, where it should be going. It keeps, it keeps you driving forward. I know people tend to have perfectionism, especially in the creative field. When did you decide that, okay, I think the story's good enough. I'm not going to change it anymore. I actually went at about midnight last night and made a change and upload, re-uploaded it <laughs> to all the platforms. So I'm struggling with that. When is good enough, good enough? But I, I mean, for the most part, I had an editor, you know, the editor said, I think you should make these changes. I made the changes, went through it again. And that I took her professional opinion and said, okay, she thinks it's good enough. It's it's good to go. I'm going to be good with that. But like I said, then I did still tweak something. <laughs> just It's like one sentence. It was just bothering me. And that's a good thing about, right, about digital publishing too, is that you you do have the option to tweak something. Although it's not, it's not the best thing to do. I'm not going to do it again. 
that was my confession to all of your listeners right there that I did in fact go in and change one little thing. <laughs> so you're in the spotlight, but when it comes to like the creative space or like any type of entrepreneurial uh, endeavor, you, you do have a team behind you. So what are some key people of your team that has supported you in this journey to become the writer you are today? I have my alpha reader, who is my husband. He gets the the worst of all of the drafts. He gets the first one where he says, I can't even read the sentence. And I say, yeah, I know, but what do you think? <laughs> but, but make it something good. Say something positive. So I have alpha reader. That's that's my husband. And then I have beta readers, which are after I have a, a working draft, a, like decent working draft. They go through and they look for big plot holes or like big problems, global problems. Then I go back and tweak it again. Then it goes to my editor and she does any sort of fine developmental. She's fantastic, by the way. She does any sort of fine developmental editing and then also a line edit. Then it comes back to me, more edits. And then it goes to my ARC readers, which are advanced reader copy. They're just reading for typos, stuff like that. Back to me again, fix that. And then it goes out. So they're really, it's a whole process, many revisions, you know, and a whole team of people. Do you self-publish or do you you have a contract with like a publishing house? No, right now I'm self-published. And that was something that kept me from doing it earlier because there was the perception that self-publishing was not a legitimate way to publish. And I had put out feelers for agents, you know, and, and big publishing houses and had some good bites, but nothing solid enough before we moved to Japan. So I, you know, I sort of put that on hold, but now, I mean, self-publishing, it's ubiquitous, you know, it's seen as just as legitimate and there's just as, as good a quality product coming out self-published as there is with the major publishing houses. So I, I feel I feel fine saying now that I'm an indie, you know, an indie writer, indie publisher, and I have control and I get more royalties. <laughs> so let's talk quickly about the revenue aspect of it. So you publish it. I'm assuming like you post on Amazon and then they can get the ebook, right? Yeah, it's Amazon, Kindle, Apple, Google. It's everywhere. It's, you can get it everywhere. So how did you market your launch? Well, I was in mid-marketing of the launch when the Afghan crisis happened, which is a whole other story. But I had a launch plan. It's kind of like a mini business plan within your larger business plan that starts a couple months out. You start you know, teasing it on your author page. You maybe I didn't this time, but you'd maybe run a Facebook ad or start an Amazon ad. And then the big thing is you put up your pre-order pages on the website. So before the book is even available, there's a nice professional cover there. You have your blurb for the book up and people can start to find you. Search engine optimization is a big part of it, right? You need to get your website up and running. You need your name out there in all kinds of places so that when someone types in something having to do with you, what you want to show up as that first hit shows up. Did you build an audience first, for example, on social media, and then you launched the book or did you just launch the book and use aggressive tactics that you mentioned, like advertising and all that stuff? I did not build a following first and I should have. <laughs> I am late to Twitter. I've been on and off Twitter for a while, but never seriously, you know, tweeting on a regular basis. I've been on Facebook, but personally not professionally. And some of the other new like TikTok, I, I think I'm too old. I don't know. I just I need to understand TikTok. It's it's for you young, younger folks. But I should have built a better following first. I am behind the ball a little bit on that. I think I just wanted to get the book out and rushed it probably a bit. And I don't think it'll burn me in the long run, but in the short term for revenue, I'm definitely having to scramble to make up for the audience that I didn't have built in to begin with. If I had taken more time to build a a broader audience first, it would have been maybe a smoother path up with royalties, but I'm getting there regardless. So maybe in that, I don't think it's going to matter in the end. It's always better to put something in market than planning for the perfect time, right? 
<laughs> I guess that's that's what I'm going with. <laughs> what, what are some other learning lessons that you can share with us in terms of your writing of projects? I think the biggest one is be kind to yourself. That would be one. I think especially with a perfectionist type personality, you know, you read something, you've read your draft a million times and it just starts to sound awful to you no matter how good it is. And you can always have other people read it and they'll say, oh, it's great. But there's always the little part inside of you that says, oh, well, it could be better or nobody's going to like it or they're just saying that because they don't want to offend me. I think you need to be kind to yourself in that regard and and know your value and have a little faith that all this work that you've put into it and all the legwork you know, that you've put in ahead of time is going to pay off regardless of the little voice in your head that says, well, maybe it's not not good enough. How long has this book been in market? It launched, the pre-order came up about a month ago, but it launched on September 1st. So it's only been, gosh, I don't even know, a little over a week. And then I also have a novella out that's exclusively through Amazon. I'm trying something a little different with marketing on that. And that's been doing pretty well too. That, that's a whole different animal. Um, the, the Kindle Unlimited is a whole different animal of marketing, but between the two of them, a couple of weeks. But yeah, the novel's only been out a week, and it's doing it's doing okay. It's it's a slow and steady climb. It didn't you know hit as number one or anything, but I didn't expect it to either. As a first book, like I said, I have a five year plan. It's a multi book plan. <laughs> so the book's been out for a week and a few days. I'm assuming reviews are coming in now. How are they? Like, have you got any bad reviews? Are most of them good? Like, what's what's the feedback? So far, they're really good. There is a very strict policy on Amazon and all platforms that you cannot solicit reviews. You can't give anybody anything for a positive review. They have to you know, leave a review. Even if you sent them a free copy, like I sent out some paperbacks. It's also available in paperback. I sent out some paperbacks to people and said, you know, read it. And I basically put it as, if you are so inclined, please leave an honest review. You know, I said, even bad reviews help me become a better writer. But so far, the reviews have been good. There will be, there will be the, you know, someone will put a one star review up there and say something horrible. And then I'm going to put it on a mug for inspiration and drink my coffee out of it every morning as I'm writing. Like that's, it will happen. And I think having a thick skin in any kind of a creative field or any field at all, you, you have to, you have to be able to let it roll off of you and say, okay, well, that was, that was one person's opinion. You know, just like keep, keep going. So now the book's launched, like, are you doing, for example, like a podcast tour to promote the book or what were you now to like keep the momentum going? Yeah, I'm trying to come on podcasts to talk about my book and about life as you know, as I am with you and career uh, interests and running the ads, doing the Facebook and Amazon ads and that sort of thing. And then I'm out there more in social media space, trying to tweet and do all of the things in, in that space too. So it's kind of a broad campaign, but really every every author will tell you too, the best marketing for your first book is your second book. So I'm spending, you know, probably 80% of, of my writing time writing the second book. So you said it's a, a five-year multi-book plan. So I'm assuming your next book will be coming out next year? It'll be coming out in the spring. Yeah, the plan is every six months. If I really can build some more hours into my day, it might be every four months of book release. But for me, with kids, with a family, you know, six months, I feel like is a reasonable time frame for me to be releasing books. And then what comes with every book that you have out, you know, if readers find that book, then they find your previous books too. And so every subsequent book will increase your sales for all of the previous books and they build on each other. That sounds like podcasting, right? So yeah. the, more episode, the, the more episodes you put out, the more they'll go to your backlog and like listen to like some of the older ones, right? And then it increases exactly. your downloads so you have so many. It's kind of content creation, right? That new, that new term, we have to make more content. <laughs> 
So let's go to your next phase of your career. So you're doing your creative writing. You're writing great stories where you utilize your current like personal life with like the Navy to inspire you for writing these stories, right? Yes. Yeah. So you also told me that you have this refugee project that you're also working on. So why don't you share with us more on that as well? This happened. This was not my, my, again, not my plan. All kinds of things happen that aren't my plan. But I think like most people, I was watching the news, you know, and seeing the news of people trying to get out of, out of Afghanistan. And it's really heartbreaking to, to see the crisis there. And then, you know, as a, a military spouse who's been doing this for a while now, I mean, we have friends who are there, you know, who had interpreters and people who had friends there, Afghan friends. And so when I saw everything on the news and I knew they were coming to my area, the DC metro area, I knew they, they needed help. And I just, I wanted to help. I heard about them needing resettlement and home, home setups. And I thought, yeah, I, I can do that. So that's kind of what inspired it, but it's grown into this whole other thing that I didn't expect as life, as, as happens in life. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you elaborate more on that in terms of how it grew unexpectedly? Sure. I, I started this group. I signed up through one of the local agencies that's doing these home home settlements, uh, resettlements for people. And I signed up to do one home setup and then went to my one of my spouse groups and said, hey, who wants to help me with this? And I made a little private Facebook group. Let's all talk over there. And within 12 hours, the agency called back and said, can you do two? And this was within, we had to do it in a couple of days. This was, these were people who came in, they had just moved into houses and they literally had nothing in their house, like sleeping on the floor, nothing. And they needed everything that you need when you, you know, move into a house. So I think I got the call on like a Tuesday and they said, can you do it on Friday? And I said, I can get more volunteers on a Saturday. So that following Saturday, we set up two homes complete with everything they needed. And even by that time, my group had gone from me and just, you know, 20 friends to about 500 people in that span of five days. It was just, it was this incredible outpouring of people saying, I want to help. I don't know how to help. What can I do? I'll do, you know, do you need money? Do you need items? Do you need manpower? What do you need? And it's continued to grow from there. I think now our group has set up, I'm not totally up on the count, but 10, 10 to 15 families. And we're now providing continuing support to services, helping them get linked with Medicaid and, you know, doctor's appointments, school enrollment. And just getting the other things they need, like Metro cards, you know, to get around and getting their driver's license tests. So I'm really proud of what we've been able to put together in a really short time. And I feel like it's, you know, it's not about what it does for me. It's not about my career. It's not about any of that. It's about being a human, helping other humans who are in crisis and having the ability to do something and getting up and doing it. And what's the short-term plan for this project? The short-term plan is just to help as many people as we can. Our, I think we're at around 1,000 members now, um, and it's slowing down a bit, but I can't believe. I mean, we still get people wanting to join every day with things to offer. We have a really wide community of people with a lot of different skills, which is great. So the short-term plan is help as many people as we can. The long-term plan, I think, for us, if we can get 501c3 sponsorship, which I don't know if you're familiar with the whole nonprofit lingo, I'm learning about it, but we have a problem with donations. People want to give us money and we can't take their money <laughs> because it counts as personal income towards all of our, our income taxes. So we're looking for an, an already established nonprofit to partner with to be able to take these tax-free donations. There's one thing that you uh, you mentioned when we we're talking offline is about like community outreach and I think a lot of uh, young professionals, they don't do a lot of that. Like they focus on their career, they focus on their own personal stuff, but they don't really 
like give back or volunteer or do that community outreach. What's your advice on that? My advice is that I, I think everybody, no matter how much or how little time you have, no matter how much money or how little money you have, everybody has the ability to do something. So if you have time, donate your time. If you're really you know, spending a lot of time on your career, but you have money, donate your money. We can use both. If you, everybody collects stuff that they don't need. If you have items, donate your items. And it doesn't have to be to this. It can be to anything. You know, even if you drop off at your local Goodwill, they're doing good things with that. So I think people in some ways beat themselves up a little bit too much about thinking that they have to do something huge. No one has to do something huge. It just, everybody just needs to do a little bit. So I would encourage people, it doesn't matter how busy you are, you know, you can do something. Just look around and find a place where you can pitch in in some small way. And that's good enough. Just doing a little bit is good enough. Yeah, because I, I believe people think they have to do this enormous thing where they have to donate like a whole weekend of time or what have you, right? But it, if you don't have that time, like just donating a little bit to your like local like hospital or something, that, that's, that's still a contribution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're one hour, you know, one hour of your time and use your use your skill. It doesn't have to be in something that you don't understand, you know, if you're a professional in one area, like as a lawyer, for example, right? I've offered to donate legal services to help people fill out applications. Or if you're, you know, in business, help that way. If you're in housing, help that way. Like use what you're already good at and find a way to help if you can to help in a way in something that you're already an expert at. Because these organizations and people need all kinds of different things. Don't don't think it's just limited to time or money or, you know, what set idea you have of what volunteering is. The common theme in your story and a lot of people that end up uh, leaving a traditional path is they seem to be more happy and more fulfilled than when they were working a prestigious job, when they were making more money. Why do you think that is? I think it's a lie to say money can't buy happiness because in some respects it definitely can. But there is the internal need that I think we all have as humans to have passion. And I think... It's a rare thing if you can be passionate about the thing that you're also getting paid for, you know? And I think that if you can say that about your life, you've really figured it out. And I think there's some kind of saying that like, if you're doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how it goes, something to that effect. And that really is true. It's that finding the combination of work and passion and making the thing that you're getting paid for also be the thing that you love, even if it's a little bit less money. I, th- I think that's why people are more fulfilled when they move in that direction. It's funny how you mentioned that. It's it's kind of like the reason why they have to pay so much is because no one really wants to do it. <laughs> because like, you, have, you have the creative, you have the fun projects like writing, like shooting video, like people get paid less, right? And some people want them to do it for free because there's so much demand for these types of roles. There's so much supply, right? Compared to working a traditional job where deep down they might not really want to do it. So they have to pay more to get them to do it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, maybe the Elon Musks of the world have found it and they can have the really prestigious, you know, billionaire job and it's also their passion. But I don't think that that's most of us. I think most of us have other needs. <laughs> Great. So I want to end this discussion with one last question that I asked like, all of my guests on my podcast. So my podcast is about helping professionals overcome career challenges, whatever they may be. So for you, I know you shared a lot in terms of like different challenges that you had to face in your career, but what was one challenge or roadblock that you faced, like the biggest one that you had to overcome that made you who you are today? The biggest roadblock for me was what is my identity? I had always described myself in terms of my accomplishments. And frankly, I had a lot of accomplishments, like I'm sure, you know, a lot of young professionals do. 
And as we moved, as I slipped on what I thought my goal was, you know, I kept falling a little more and a little more behind and started to question, can I even do this? Can I even keep finding new legal jobs that pay well? Do I want to do something else? It was that real question of if I'm not a lawyer, if I'm not an accomplished person on paper, who am I? And I think it took a lot of introspection and just time to, and maybe a little bit of just wisdom with years, to be okay with knowing that I have value regardless of of what my accomplishments are on paper. And in accepting that, I've actually found that I am having more accomplishments, more success. So I think, you know, for anyone trying to decide who am I, who do I want to be, finding value outside of anything having to do with your career may bring you more success in your career in a sort of roundabout way, in a way that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, I think you bring up a very a common theme is that people tie their work with their identity, right? And you should be more than just your job. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's essential to being a human. I agree as well. And again, uh, thank you for coming on my podcast to share your career story and talking about how you made a drastic career change that made you more fulfilled. How can people connect with you to whether learn more about your career trajectory or learn more about your book and your refugee project? So you can visit me on the web. Uh, my website is www.amymarden.com. That has um, everything about my my author career. Uh, and then if you'd like to learn more about the refugee crisis in our area, Lutheran Social Services is the organization that's organizing most of it. But you can also go to the USAID website through the government and find out more about how you can help and how what's what's going on. And I, I really urge you to do that too, because there's there's a need. There's a definite need. Again, thank you for your time, Amy, and best of luck with your endeavors. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again to Amy for sharing her story on how she went from being a successful but unhappy lawyer into a career in writing, as well as founding an organization that provides support and resources for Afghan refugees. And now with this sense of purpose, she feels more fulfilled than she has ever been in her career. I hope Amy's story is able to motivate you and inspire you to make drastic changes in your career in order to find your life's purpose. We only have so many working years on earth, so don't waste it on doing stuff that you don't enjoy. So even if it's in the next week or two from now, you're starting to craft a plan on creating your exit strategy from the current job that you're in that you're not happy with, it's a start. It can sometimes take months to pivot from your current job to a new one. So as I always say, the best time to take action is now. If you want to hear my own insights and experiences with this topic, make sure to check out ChanCap this upcoming Friday morning on all popular podcast platforms. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. Again, this is Chan with A Plan the Podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan, and I thank you for listening.